Hi, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now on Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of March 247th, 2020. Okay, for anyone paying attention, this is the week of November 2nd, 2020. Hey guys, I want to start this episode off by asking you a question you've probably heard a bajillion times. How are you? What are you responding with when people ask you that right now? Are you giving them the standard fine, and you? I would say I'm pretty easygoing for the most part, but there is something about that question that is almost triggering for me right now. Because fine is for normal times. And that's not how I'm feeling right now. Even though I never say it, sometimes I just want to answer honestly. I'm not great. It's complicated. I'm kind of having a rough day, week, month, and actually the entire year has been pretty bad. Not super proud of my recent spending habits online. To be honest, I'm sad, lonely, drained, numb, angry, anxious, tired, stressed, overwhelmed, and a little mood swingy. I'm also really grateful that I'm doing more okay than some people. And that makes me feel really guilty for feeling all the other things I just said. How about you? None of us could have mentally prepared to take on a pandemic. But we can stay informed, work on ourselves, and do our best. To help keep us informed, we're joined again by emergency physician and the medical director for Premier Health EMS Center of Excellence, Dr. Randy Marriott. Hi, Dr. Marriott. In this pandemic where I'm sure you rarely get a break, I want to know, how are you? Well, I I think that um, over the summer months, we kind of did. Um, We didn't have a lot of cases back in June, uh, early June to mid-June. Uh, the high-risk respiratory unit at Miami Valley Hospital was was fairly uh, fairly fairly tame, so to speak. There was uh, at one point uh, four or fewer people on ventilators, and those were folks that had languished for several weeks on ventilators. So we have seen some reduction uh, in the uh, in the numbers. Now uh, we had a spike right after July fourth. Uh, that most people attribute to poor social distancing, uh, poor mask compliance, uh, and then that seemed to uh, wane. And then after Labor Day, uh, the same thing occurred, and now it is just persistent. Uh, there are probably some other factors in play, uh, cooler weather, uh, schools opening. Uh, the, the university uh, age group has been uh, a real problem. And for the most part, they're not getting ill to a large degree, but they're becoming spreaders, asymptomatic spreaders, or minimally uh, minimally symptomatic spreaders. And so that's, uh, that's I think, created uh, some of the problems that we're seeing now. We're clearly in a spike. Uh, we have numbers now that rival what we ever had, and we're managing it. Uh, the We are still conducting elective procedures at the same numbers that we that we have. Uh, we we have all the PPE that we need. Uh, we're still uh, isolating these uh, individuals in the uh, emergency departments and trying to bring them in through a different route. 
but we're finding that we're not uh, making staff ill and we have no information, no reason to believe we've been making the public ill uh, who are also in the emergency department. In fact, I know of no cases of someone having become uh, infected with COVID because they visited the emergency department for an unrelated uh, problem. So that's simply not happening. Um, but we're we're seeing the numbers uh, that uh, higher than we've seen throughout the entire uh, pandemic. And because of the uh, procedures and policies and processes that we put in place back in the spring, we're able to manage it. Now, that having been said, right now at Miami Valley, uh, we are in code yellow, uh, meaning you know, we're on disaster status. And that's due to bed availability. Uh, and we do have a, a, a high census on our high-risk respiratory units, which are three floors in the in the southeast edition, the, the heart and vascular tower. Um, and that census today was 83, which I believe is higher than what we had in the spring. So amazingly, in six months, we've learned how to uh, cope with this uh, with this disease to the extent now that we can have a higher census than we've ever had. And the real problem is not our ability to handle this particular disease, but it's handling the volume of patients in general just because the hospital is full. So we're seeing a spike here in the United States with lots of things contributing to that, being back in school, holidays, and gathering indoors with cooler temperatures. Are our facilities prepared to handle things if this spike continues and COVID cases continue to rise? Right. Now, you know, will it mean opening up surge units, possibly, uh, if this continues? Or will it mean that we have to uh, curtail other uh, procedures? We're hoping not. That had such a negative impact, both on the health of our community, mainly, and the financial health of our uh, healthcare institutions. And, you know, we, we need to protect the medical infrastructure. We need to protect the public health. So I, I don't think that there is uh, any uh, uh, proposal currently to curtail elective procedures again like we did in, in the spring. Might that be done on a selective basis if we get to a certain point? Maybe. But certainly nothing that is uh, that is urgent or semi-urgent is going to be delayed at this point. And now, bear in mind, part of that uh, curtailing of elective procedures in the spring was to preserve uh, PPE. And now that the, the personal protective equipment is in uh, in fairly good supply, there's that 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 rationale for stopping elective procedures no longer exists. So that's that's going to be way down the list. Uh, opening up surge units and uh, auxiliary beds, in other words, that's that's going to be a, a uh, probably a bigger bigger priority. Uh, maximizing discharges, uh, improving our throughput and efficiency. That's what we're focusing on right now in terms of managing this code yellow. And the code yellow is 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 actually two pronged. It is census unusually high census uh, for the Miami Valley hospitals, uh, Maine, North and South. Right now, the census today is 801, which is particularly high. Uh, the number of available beds uh, right now, as we speak, will not meet the admission demands of this day. So that means that our integrative care management team is having to facilitate every possible discharge 
uh, and much of that uh, depends on being able uh, to arrange placement in the community and uh, in uh, extended care facilities and long-term care facilities and step-down facilities of various types, rehab uh, facilities as, as, as well. So they've got a big job ahead of them. They're, they're projecting that they can maybe get about 140 discharges completed by the end of today. Uh, so a huge, huge <laughs> undertaking. Uh, but yeah, if we can if we can maximize uh, the efficiency of our throughput, it'll 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 help. Local residents are being asked to continue to take precautions and evaluate their actions as two counties a short distance from Montgomery County have been placed on a watch list and could reach the state's highest COVID-19 alert level, which is level four purple. With many people already following the rules in place, what more can we do? Wear your mask. If 85% of people would comply with the simple request to wear a mask when in public, we could save literally uh, tens of thousands of lives in the next several months. Uh, This has been projected and modeled multiple times. Yesterday from the American College of Emergency Physicians, it was uh, a republication of, of other studies, and it's available on the CDC website as well. Wear your mask. That is the number one thing that you can do to help stop the spread of this disease and help your neighbor from not being uh, being killed by it. That's uh, there's no there's no better way to put it. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're if you think you're sick or if you think you're not sick. You don't know. We're seeing so much asymptomatic transmission. Um, that it's just, it's simply uh, impossible to know. It doesn't matter if you had a negative test weeks weeks prior or even days prior. That doesn't mean you can't become ill even the next day. It, it, it happens. We've had people, multiple people come into the emergency department who have had symptoms tested positive when they had had a negative test just a day or two previous. So there there is, you know, this is the... Uh, Testing is important because we need to identify those asymptomatic uh, positives. Uh, but at the same time, testing is not foolproof. And it's a negative test is not a get out of mask free card. Uh, that doesn't say that that you're no longer uh, a potential threat uh, the very next day to your family and, and, and friends. And uh, I, I can't emphasize that more. And I, I really don't understand why we're getting so much resistance. You know, I understand that Americans are fiercely independent and and that we don't like to be told what to do. Um, but I, I and again, we're 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 looking at a problem that is um, much more difficult to to wrap your brain around. It's something you can't see, smell or taste. Uh, and that it's it's uh, it's like a it's like a poison gas that uh, that you can't uh, detect with your senses. You It's hard to really appreciate its potential. You know, during World War II, when uh, when we had air raid uh, drills and and people would have to turn their lights out and comply, and, you know, the, the compliance was nearly 100%. Why? Because the concept of a German bomber going over their city uh, was much more tangible uh, than, a, than, a, than a microorganism that, <laughs> that uh, finds its way up their nose. Uh, so it's it just, it, I think that's part of the, part of the problem. 
If someone has tested positive for COVID and they've isolated for the proper amount of time, should they still be worried about potential reinfection? And should those individuals still be masking? We think three, more likely four months time frame is the answer for how long you would not have to worry about reinfection. But we've had docu- at least one documented case in the United States where the individual was reinfected prior to that uh, time frame. So, and, and, and it's fairly certain that this individual is reinfected because they did actual, uh, actual DNA sequencing of the virus during both infections and they were different. Uh, that's how they're fairly, fairly sure. Um, so if there has been one, there's been others, and uh, we don't know how many. Um, now, for purposes of cohorting in a hospital, if you've had a positive test within about three to four months, you're generally not put back on the HRRU if you re-enter the hospital for another respiratory complaint, which could be flu once that once that begins. If I were positive, I would still wear a mask in, in public. Uh, and we don't know what antibody means uh, necessarily. I think if you have a positive antibody test, you were probably exposed at one time and you probably do have some immunity. Um, we're not sure how long that will last, however. Because once you have an antibody test, several weeks have gone by, so we really can't time, uh, maybe months, we really can't time uh, when you were exposed. So we don't know when that four-month uh, time uh, We don't know when the clock started on a positive antibody test. In a video that went viral in September, someone claimed that the CDC confirmed that the virus that causes COVID-19 was never airborne and wearing face masks is unnecessary. The claim is based on a recent shift in the CDC's guidance on COVID-19 transmission. Is this accurate and can you please explain why? All right, so... In the in the in the very early days of the pandemic, the concern was that this virus may be aerosolized, may be airborne, and not simply transmitted by droplet. So this generated a lot of uh, recommendations from various infection disease and infectious disease. Uh, uh, practitioners, organizations, uh, a lot of conflicting information was was being put out as to whether more precaution or not. He was recommending these uh, infected individuals be put in a negative airflow room. And of course, that caused quite a bit of consternation. So we only have so many of those rooms. And if you were anyone in that room would have to have uh, the highest respiratory protection being either a PAPR or an N95 and take other precautions. And, and, and so we, we went back and forth with all of these wrecks uh, uh, and proposals for weeks. And finally, uh, I think it, it became clear that this was a droplet disease and that negative airflow rooms were not necessary and that uh, even a simple mask is protective against droplet. So you'll find even today, uh, a lot of uh, lot of healthcare personnel are very comfortable just simply wearing a, a, a mask. Uh, we, uh, just last night uh, when I was working, we, uh, we intubated a, a COVID patient, put them on the ventilator. Um, 80% of the nurses in the room 
probably 100% of the nurses were simply wearing masks. They weren't right up in the, they weren't right up at the head while we were doing that, but they were in the same room and they were perfectly comfortable with that. So roll forward now, we have some report that that could be, uh, could be airborne. Well, the truth is it's always been potentially airborne if you create the right circumstances. If you've got a high flow oxygen mask whistling through their airway and flowing through their airway. If you have a, a nasal cannula in their nose that's at a high flow rate. If you have, if you're using a bag valve mask to ventilate like them. If you have, um, say, a BiPAP, which is like a CPAP, a medical, medical grade uh, CPAP, a little bit more, little more sophisticated. You have that on their mouth and the seal around the mouth is is broken and air rushes out. That's probably uh, a situation where you're aerosolizing virus. So even to give a breathing treatment, a nebulizer, an aerosol treatment, that's creating enough airflow through that 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 aerosol treatment that you're in fact aerosolizing. Hence the name of the treatment because that's what it does. It aerosolizes the medication. So if it's aerosolizing medication particles, it's it's also suspending and aerosolizing viral particles. So there's all kinds of circumstances in which uh, this uh, can become uh, aerosolized if someone is is um, is is breathing have heavily and, and under the right circumstances. Yes, it can happen. Is that the norm? No, no. Because if you're not performing an aerosolizing procedure, and if you're under fairly normal uh, breathing conditions, it's it's still droplet. It's still dropping. So uh, again, uh, and and to say that it's it's airborne if I don't have to wear a mask, that's that's re- that's re- that's patently ridiculous. Yes. If you watch if you watch some of the other um, materials where they show what happens to droplets mm-hmm. when a mask is being used, it is it is a it is a dramatic decrease. And the amount of droplet that is that is projected in that six foot zone, it it might go out around the mask around the person, but in, but in general, it doesn't uh, go into the personal space of someone, uh, even within that six foot range. Uh, you'd have to be very very close to to them. So, um, can the virus become airborne under the right circumstances? Yes. Is that at all commonplace? No. Should you still wear a mask? Yes. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Marriott is going to talk with us about some recent things I've been hearing through the local grapevine regarding COVID-19, and he's going to share some common things he's seeing while on the front line. At Premier Health, our care lives where you are, with telehealth options available 24-7 and online scheduling for doctor visits. It lives close to home, with primary and specialty care providers and convenient urgent care locations in ours. And it lives in our emergency rooms, with access to the region's most experienced level one trauma center. Our care lives in safe and easy access to the care you need the way you want it. Find the care that's right for you at ChoosePremierCare.com. Premier Health. And we're back. Dr. Marriott, recently I've heard quite a few positive COVID-19 cases turning into pneumonia. Is that common and is it dangerous? Any type of viral lower respiratory infection, flu, COVID, what have you, 
can potentially set you up for a bacterial secondary infection or super infection. Um, and this has been recognized, you know, for quite some time, over a century. This is what killed many of the uh, uh, victims of the 1918 pandemic was the secondary pneumonia and our inability to address that uh, in the pre-antibiotic age. Same thing can occur with COVID. I'm not personally seeing a great deal of this, uh, but it, it can occur. Now, bear, that, bear in mind that COVID itself can present pneumonia-like findings on a CAT scan or X-ray and, and, and will give you pneumonia-like symptoms. So where the COVID stops and a bacterial infection begins is really difficult to, to say, and it's more of a clinical judgment. And if someone is not improving in the uh, anticipated time frame, uh, and they show maybe evidence of a of a more uh, discrete area of fluid in one part of the lung, then I think it's reasonable to be concerned that maybe they've developed a secondary pneumonia and treat them for it. Um, I'm not I'm not uh, seeing, in my experience, at least. That this is happening terribly frequently, nor is it uh, what is causing the the worst complications. Uh, the worst complications come from a, a diffuse inflammation of the lung that is mainly from the immune response that we have to the virus itself. So it's that that cytokine storm that you you, you hear spoken about, which is that overwhelming immune response, and so it's it's creating a lungs that's similar what we term ARDS or uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Some, sometimes it's called adult respiratory distress syndrome to differentiate it from what occurs in, in infants and, and neonates. But the ARDS and what we're seeing with, uh, with COVID are similar in appearance. Now, the, the, the treatments have been somewhat divergent, and, and we're learning a little bit about ARDS along the, along the journey of COVID, too. But that's more likely to happen, that immune response causing uh, the, uh, the lung to lose its, its stretch, to get fluid uh, into the uh, alveoli and the areas around the alveoli, making the lungs heavier and wetter and more difficult to, to uh, oxygenate the body uh, in, that, in that state. So that's what we're seeing more of. Even early on, we knew that even when the x-ray would suggest a typical pneumonia, that some of these folks had COVID. <laughs> so it's a great masquerader. Um, and we also know that a certain number, small percentage will get nothing but gastrointestinal symptoms and get no respiratory symptoms. And the only way that was found early on was they would develop such intense abdominal symptoms that they would actually get a CAT scan of the abdomen looking for explanations for their abdominal symptoms. And doing the CAT scan for the abdomen, it starts high uh, above the diaphragm, so you, you see the bottom portion of the lungs. And we realized that uh, on several of these patients, they actually had the what we call the ground glass opacities, which is what, you, you, what we sometimes see on a CAT scan related to COVID. And they would have that in their lungs, but they were having no respiratory symptoms whatsoever. They were all 
having abdominal pain and vomiting and diarrhea and what have have you. So, and they were they were COVID positive. So again, it, it's it's kind of a mas- masquerading uh, disease. But to sum, summarize your question, yes, you can get a secondary pneumonia on top of COVID that's from a bacteria, and you should have antibiotics. Another thing I've heard of happening with a few people that I know who've gotten the virus is that they're being prescribed a Z-Pack. Why would a Z-Pack be prescribed for a virus? A couple reasons why that's being done. One reason may very well be this concern of a secondary pneumonia, either treating it or preventing it. And, and I'm not sure the prevention aspect is well supported by medical evidence. But the third reason is that Zithromax has been known to have anti-inflammatory effects. And so the theory is giving it uh, early on may help to prevent some of that cytokine response and, and inflammatory lung damage that, that leads to the condition similar to ARDS. Um, the evidence for that is is mixed, uh, but I think there's been enough uh, positive uh, evidence and, and a lot of anecdotal evidence that a lot of physicians are, are using it. Um, it's, uh, it's a fairly safe drug in most respects, other than it can have effects on your heart conduction. So if you're on other medications that can affect your heart conduction, the electrical conduction through the heart, then it's, you really have to weigh the, the risk and benefits of adding, uh, adding Zithromax uh, to, your, to your treatment regimen. And of course, not just here, but all over the United States, we've heard lots about prison and correctional centers and the staff becoming infected as well as inmates. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? So yeah, uh, correctional facilities are, are a particular problem uh, simply because you have mass cohorting and you have some high risk individuals there. Um, they're in very close contact. Some of, uh, some of our uh, initial mass outbreaks were in the prison system. Uh, somewhere around uh, April this year, Marion Correctional had an 80% positive rate. I'm told that Lebanon uh, Correctional has been um, at times at a similar level. Now, the the fascinating thing about this is those people are not getting sick to the point where they're being hospitalized, very rarely. Uh, you would think Atrium Medical Center would be seeing people every hour from Lebanon Correctional. They're not. Uh, Mary in the same way, the very few of those people became significantly ill. So who knows why that is? One theory is that as the disease passed through uh, this congregate care setting, these tightly housed individuals, that they were getting smaller exposures initially uh, and then uh, developing uh, an immune response Uh, that was modulated, that wasn't uh, an extreme response like we've seen with uh, people in the the general public. So it's something about how they became exposed, the degree of their exposure, the degree of uh, the the viral load that they were exposed to is different. Uh, It's it's a really interesting phenomenon, and I I don't know that we have all the answers yet. But, But the point being is correctional facilities are particularly at risk, and what seems to be happening is those who are the employees are getting sicker and the inmates are not getting as sick. Again, theories, but no answers as to why that's occurring. 
And Dr. Marriott, so just to give our listeners a little background, from a side conversation, you sparked a few more questions um, from things that you have seen on the front line. For employers who have employees who've tested positive, when is it safe for them to return to work? Once an employee's had a positive test, simply follow CDC guidelines for when they can return, as we've already discussed, which is 10 days from symptom onset uh, with substantial improvement in symptoms and a fever-free period at the end of that 10 days. Uh, beyond that, there's nothing else to do. That person is safe to, re- to return to work. There is no recommended retesting unless you're the president of the United States and you need to attend a, a, a debate. Aside from that, and, and it's unfortunate that, that the news coverage during that time did not make this point clear, but for 99.9% of Americans, you do not need and should not pursue a follow-up test. And, and by all means, don't come to the emergency department asking for a repeat test. We won't do it. So <laughs> it will be a waste of your, of, your, of your time. And from our same conversation earlier, can you give a breakdown of quarantine? When should you do it? Who should do it? Why and how long? Quarantine is for individuals who have been in contact with known positives. Not in contact with people who have been in contact with known positives. So in other words, it's you yourself must have been in contact with that positive and not someone else that you've been in contact with. So in other words, there's no secondary quarantine. There's no, uh, you know, uh, there's no degree of separation. You must have been the person that was exposed. Um, that uh, quarantine period is 14 days from the time, last time of exposure, and the time of separation that's sometimes referred to when you last were exposed and then separated from that positive in, in individual. And it is not shortened by testing. You cannot test your way out of quarantine. Okay, that's not recommended. Uh, and the reason being is that even though you're negative one day, you can be positive the very next day. We've seen this occur. So those are the, those are, and now in, in to, just to differentiate terms, someone who has been exposed and is positive and is on that 10 day period from the time of, of symptom onset, they are in isolation. So they have disease. Quarantine is for individuals who have been exposed to positive patients, but they themselves do not have symptoms. So soon the quarantine is to observe for symptom uh, onset. So isolation versus quarantine. Thank you so much, Dr. Marriott. It's okay to check in with others and to check in with yourself. And it's okay to answer honestly when someone asks you how you've been. Maybe the next time you ask someone, how are you? And they say, I'm fine. You should take the time to follow up with, but really, how are you? It's so easy to just say, fine. But sometimes we're not fine. It's important to share with people we trust, acknowledge our feelings, and hey, show yourself a little compassion. 
And while you're asking everyone else, don't forget to ask yourself, how are you, really? You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com slash COVID-19. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.